Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. But I've seen too many people who are destroyed, and then I've seen too many people that we destroy. So do you want to be part of that? Because even if you make it through the gamble, you're going to be part of that. You're part of that destruction. That was Michael McPherson, former executive director of Veterans for Peace, and he joins Rhonda Shelton and Miles Thomas. As today, we discuss military service from an African-American perspective. But first, my name is Jim Wolgabuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast are on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military-industrial congressional media corporate complex who stand up for us, the global us. And today we have three of those voices. We have three veterans, Rhonda Shelton, Miles Thomas, and Michael McPherson, who will discuss their military experience and life after the military as African Americans in the United States. We start with Rhonda. Hi, my name is Rhonda Shelton. I'm 39. I was in the Air Force from 2001 to 2003. I was stationed in Dias Air Force Base, Texas. I went to Oman for Operation Enduring Freedom. And I've been a member of Veterans for Peace since March 2018. And I'm just happy to be here. My name is Miles uh, Megasife. I am uh, 48. I was a um, member of the Marine Corps from 92 to 96. I deployed to Cuba for one year and Okinawa for a year, I guess, or six months. I was in three years, eight months, six days, and 10 hours. And I was sent home with a, uh, a, a, other than honorable for smoking cannabis. I'm now a father of three, have two degrees, and I, I think I beat all the odds. And I'm here as living proof that we exist. Michael. Hi, everybody. Um, so I'm Michael McPherson, and we're giving out our age today, huh? So uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm 58. I'll be 59 in May. I went into the army between my junior and senior year of high school. So I guess I was 17 or something like that back in 1981. I went to ROTC and became an officer, a field artillery officer. And I served in what people call the first Gulf War in 1990. One of the things I always pointed out is that war is the same war that the Iraq War uh, the Afghan war is an expansion of that war. It's all the same kind of thing. Gar went on until, what, the year before last, basically, mm -hmm. 30 years of war. And I got out in 1992. And uh, I have some grandkids. And uh, I live in Seattle, Washington. I don't know where to start, but maybe, Michael, why did you join the military? In some ways, it's complex. and others, it's very simple. I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where Fort Bragg is located. I have multiple generations from my grandfather served in the first world war. I had grand, I had an uncle who served in world war II. other uncles who served in the Vietnam era, first sergeants, sergeant majors. 
uh, being around troops, um, living near Fort Bragg, Fayetteville is where Fort Bragg is located, seeing um, stable families, people getting out of high school, my friends going into the military, buying cars. It's just one of the things you do when you grow up in a, a military town. A town is dominated, or at least from my experience, a town is dominated by the military. And I mean, you respect the soldiers, they look good. And I mean, there's no reason not to respect them when you're young and you're growing up. And then the country's telling you that be the best you can be, an army of one. And every Memorial Day, you see parades, you see um, people standing at the unknown, unknown soldier tomb. I mean, there's so much to teach you, even if you're not in the military town, to teach you that this is one of the things you should do. And in my house, we were taught family, God, and country. And I still believe that. It's just that now I realize there's many ways to serve your country. You don't have to go in the military. Ways that will make your country much better than going in the military. But at the time, I didn't know that. So it was kind of just a natural uh, progression, a natural trajectory uh, for me mm. to go in the military. Most of my friends did. Uh, it's just what we did. Miles, why did you go into mil military? I went in um, primarily because I didn't get into the colleges I applied to. You know, I didn't have the good enough grades when I graduated high school. I was a, uh, a product of poverty, you could say. Single mother household, raised on a very fixed income, moved to Georgia when I was a junior, and the culture shock between the teachers and the students alike. Uh, my grades took a, a dive. I graduated with a D. My high school pushed me out with a 1.7 GPA. No college accepted me, but the Marine Corps did. So I, I like the Marine Corps, uh, the lore of it, the lore of the military from, from youth. I always played with G.I. Joe and, and watched war movies and glamorized Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, stuff like that. And I didn't think I had any other options at the time. Rhonda. When I was in high school I didn't want to go to college but I was just raised with the idea like when you turn 18 get out of the house either go to college or work and my mother and my father actually met in the army my father was a Vietnam vet and my mother was in in the 70s and early 80s so just looking at them the military just seemed like a viable option like you go in there you work for 20 years you get out you can retire I was just looking at it like that just the job but nobody stayed in long term. You all got out when you got out. I got I got kicked out for smoking pot. I was actually enjoying my I got to say I wasn't um political. I hadn't become politicized while I was in. Like I don't think I was going to get out anyway. I had seen a lot of racism and and horrible things, but um I I don't think I was awake. Like I'm trying to look back at at myself at that at that time. I don't think I had plans to get out. I got caught off guard, you know. They caught you for smoking. They caught me for smoking for smoking pot. You know what I'm saying? I was done at four years. I think I was uh, going to get out anyway, but I was going to get promoted to corporal right before I got caught. So I, I honestly can't say if I hadn't gotten caught, was I going to get out? Okay. Yeah. Where did you grow up, Miles? I grew up in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, until I was 15. And then we moved to Marietta, Georgia when I was 16. Mm. And that really messed me up. 
messed, uh, we moved suddenly. My mom got a good job, but the move was sudden. And um, I wasn't prepared for it emotionally, you know. And there's some pretty hardcore uh, racism out there around Marietta, too. Yeah. I was called uh, called uh, the N-word by a, young, a younger-than-me white boy who I had been playing with the entire summer. And uh, it was in his house. We had gotten into an argument. And I remember not, I remember holding myself back from hurting him because I was bigger than him and, and stronger than him. But we played, we had been playing together, you know, I was two years older than him. And so I just like, I, I got really angry. I think I punched a hole in his wall and argued with his mom. And they tried to like say it was okay or something like this. And I left, you know, and went home. And then when I was in the Marine Corps, that's when I really became exposed, honestly, to racism. Because my mom raised me socially. She raised me to be a good social person, a good American. And my drill instructors and the fleet introduced me to racism in a whole new way. In boot camp and all of our drill instructors, I was I was a light-skinned, high yellow, uppity nigga, well-spoken, you know, high class, uh, New York, East Coast, and oftentimes, with nigga or scum or maggot american you you piece of trash you you civilian trash you're not good enough for my marine corps type stuff you know that's just boot camp and then the clicks in the fleet the way people clicked up in the fleet the different groups of people the different the different pockets and this was in the 90s we were clicked up into groups of cowboys you know white guys and it, it was horrible yeah Rhonda. Any similar experience? Well, in the Air Force, I know that's like if you're black, you're more apt to get in trouble more quickly, like get written up more quickly. And then like amongst other airmen, like there are racist comments at times. I remember this one, I was at a party once and this dude was like, you know what? I don't mind black people, but I hate niggers. So I was like, what's a nigger? He's like, you know, the type like, yo, yo, what's up? So I was like, okay, I'm going to punch you in the face. So I walked outside and there was other black people. I was like, y'all need to get your boy because he's about to get his ass whooped. And they asked me what he said. And then he came outside. He said, I didn't mean anything by it. It's like, how do you not expect me to find it offensive? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Just little stuff like that would happen. Like someone would say like something slick about black people and they expect you just to laugh along. And then you get offended and they act like it's, you're like tripping. And Rhonda, you're a, a, a lady, obviously. Anything with regard to being a lady? Yeah, I think I was more negatively affected in the military being a woman, actually, than anything. As far as, like, sexual harassment and comments and touching. And that was on my mind, honestly, more so than me being Black. Just me, and a, me being a woman. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where you wanted to report something, but you knew that it was the chain of command, and so you didn't, or you just let it go? Well, I was different back then. I actually ended up getting kicked out of <laughs> military with honorable discharge. But um, let me think. We're instances. I'm sure there's always stuff going on. Always like foul things that you witness. And you kind of felt like, well, this is kind of normal. Like if you heard yeah. like a woman, like I remember I had a friend and she was saying like one of the staff sergeants was like touching her because we were sitting at picnic tables when we were in the Middle East and he was like rubbing over her legs. And she was like, it made me feel uncomfortable, but we didn't do anything. We thought no one would care. Michael? I never really had like serious uh, racism or racist experience, just subtle things. My 
basic training because I went to basic training. Like I said, I went into an army reserve between my junior and senior year of high school. So I went to basic training. And of course, all the name calling happened because it's a psychological game they play. But there was no racial uh, name calling or anything that I remember. Also, maybe because I'm from the South and I uh, always grew up in the South. Maybe there's some things would just went over my head or just didn't bother me or something. That's why I don't remember them now. I don't know. But definitely not ever called the N-word or anything by my drills and stuff. I think one thing, the Marines always try to be tougher and meaner, you know, so that's that's part of their their psychological thing. Um, so I didn't have any of that. Mostly what, what I noticed when I was an officer, just like the cliques, um, they might have been different kinds of cliques than the ones that Miles was referring to. Uh, but even um, when I was training uh, officers, basic the black people and the white people got together and we'd had our music as black people. Although I love all kinds of music, you know, but we had our music and the white guys didn't want us to play our music. So we had to kind of figure out a way so everybody's music got played. That, that ended up being something I remember. And then when I got on active duty, just who was being considered to be the best or who the officers, the, the, the higher ranking officers would hang out with or choose to bring into their circle. It's like the good old boy network, right? So as black officers, you know, mm -hmm. I was a lieutenant and the captains, we had to figure out how to navigate things because nobody was really showing us how to navigate things unless there was a major that was black or a colonel that was black who might approach us and talk to us, you know, to try to help us. But so you have much more subtle type things because, you know, as an officer, you're supposed to be a gentleman too, right? So there's a different type of way that racism uh, plays itself out. Uh, so I was fortunate not to have to deal with like the naked type of racism. Growing up, I dealt with it. Like I said, I grew up in the South. So first time I was called a nigger, actually, I was in elementary school or something by a white kid, but then I was also called it by a black kid. And I remember running to my mother because she told me when the first time the white kid called me that, I was like, what is he talking about? So she explained it. And then when the black kid called me that, I was totally confused. I'm like, mother, wait. So she explained that too, you know? So, but I've always grown up with um, Confederate flags and all that kind of stuff around. You asked me why I got out? Yeah, why'd you get out? Yeah, so I've always been aware that I never thought the military was necessarily a good thing. Like I said, I did think that it was a way to give back and to serve the country, which I wanted to do. But growing up in the church, I always thought of everyone as being children of God. And I just thought war was a necessary evil. I never thought it was like a good thing that we needed to do. So I was never really fully comfortable with it. And then um, I remember just before the Gulf War, I was training out in the Mojave Desert. And I was saying to a fellow lieutenant that I think I'm going to get out when I get back because I've served long enough and I really don't want to go to war. So when I get back, you know, I'm looking to getting out. Then we come out of the desert and we hear that Saddam Hussein has amassed troops along the border of Kuwait. I was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I was just thinking I wanted to get out before war. And I was clear we were going, even though. If you go back in history, so George Bush supposedly was thinking about it and Margaret Thatcher helped give him a spine and told him that you need to, you know, all that's BS because um, our, our unit 
<laughs> our area of contingency was the Middle East. And I'm not going to go all into all the, the reasons that I believe I knew we were going, but I was right, right? Because we went. So I figured when I got back, I mean, I already decided I was going to get out because I didn't want to go to war. So when I got back, I was damn sure getting out because it was like I did my thing and uh, I made it back uh, with all my limbs. So I don't want to take another chance. So I never thought our foreign policy was really good. It's just that as I got older, I realized just how horrible it is. So I knew going in that, one, my country was not doing the right thing and that the Navy was likely to betray me and I would go uh, and I would just try and live through it. You all volunteered. Did you ever feel like the military betrayed you? I, like I said, I didn't, um, my mom didn't raise me with a political education. I didn't, I didn't grow up listening to democracy now. I didn't grow up um, aware of uh, that America was an imperial nation. You know what I'm saying? Even though she grew up going to Malcolm X rallies, she didn't raise me thinking about those things. So it was just like, keep your head in the books. And um, my recruiter certainly didn't, wasn't honest with me. He was like, oh, you have a great ASVAB score. You can choose, um, you can choose to go to Hawaii. You'll, you'll be stationed in Hawaii. You're going to choose infantry. If you choose to be a mortarman, we'll put you in Hawaii and you'll be there for three years and it'll be wonderful. Well, I broke my feet in MOS school. My spot in Hawaii got sent to a guy who, um, who healed quicker. And so I went to Cuba. And in Cuba, I got to see a racist military. I got to, I was there when it was a, an internment camp for Haitian uh, refugees, they're 93 to 94. So I, I was watching Democracy Now! about seven months ago and I saw the news report about how it was being used. And I was like, that's when I was there. And <clears throat> I always tell the story when I do workshops about the Haitian camps, the Haitian camp on Guantanamo was a uh, dirt floor and wooden walls. Like their, their A-frame house was a, was a piece of trash. It was horrible, they were, they were horrible homes. And they had written, America is hell, this is the devil, uh, and on the walls. And I didn't understand why, because I was stationed on the other side of the island, you know, on the other side of the bay. There's the uh, leeward and windward side. And I was stationed on the side with the airstrip, the side where a Cuban asylum seeker from the Cuban army crashed his plane onto onto the tarmac and I felt the heat blast in my tower um so you know out on the line so that that stays with me the way we treated the, the Cuban refugees versus the Haitian refugees sticks with me because they had horrible places to stay and now I realized it was an AIDS internment camp and meanwhile the Cuban refugees had wooden floors and cinder block walls and uh, a decent living space while they were seeking asylum let alone these people had to come through a minefield and the way we treated them when they got there was like they were the enemy so there was a real discrimination between the haitian and the cuban refugees very real discrimination huge okay. huge lines of discrimination and then the, the way we the what, what we did in okinawa what i saw the way the military treated the okinawan people and and the way Okinawa looked at the time when I was there. It looked totally different when I was back recently, but it was um, around the bases and the, the, the way the military treated the Okinawan people and their property was completely disrespectful. The protests, there were protests when I was there and we weren't told why they were happening. You know, we weren't educated on it. 
properly. Um, so that was always uh, that that that's a big problem, you know, big problems in the military. The when I was in when I was uh, in cat in live fire training on my way out, I had been kicked down to three four. Um, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, and I was a private now. I was on my way out. I had already spent a month in the brig. I was on my way out the military, serving food in the chow hall at, um, at the live fire training, because they're not going to put a gun in my hand. And a major walked through, a black major, with his uh, Air Force jacket, with his jacket on, his pilot's jacket. And I knew immediately he was a pilot. And I was like, I had to, pro I had to say something. So I, I talked to him, I said, so you're, you're a fighter pilot? And he said, uh, he said, uh, young Marine, you're looking at, you're looking at 20%. I represent 20% of the Marine Corps' black fighter pilots. So there were five out of 10,000. Wow. Something crazy, some crazy amount of pilots. Yeah, wow. Rhonda, were you, did you ever feel betrayed? I felt betrayed because I felt like I was lied to by my recruiter. I felt like I could not have anticipated the hyper-masculinity, even though mm. it should be common sense. <laughs> I just couldn't have anticipated it was like on that level. And kind of like how dismissive people are when you're a certain type of person, particularly like a black woman, if you say something, it's like, oh, it's almost like you're immediately not believed sometimes. Where if I was a white woman, I would be believed. Like stuff like that. I just, things like that I couldn't have anticipated. So I felt betrayed in that sense. Yes. Michael? I felt more betrayed by the by the leaders than I did by the military itself. And again, my experience is very different than the one that Miles had. And in some ways I find that, or, or even Rhonda, I find that really crazy in that we're generations, not generations, half a generation apart in our experiences. And yet the racism, first of all, is a through line. Mine's just different. And then Miles and Rhonda having more, I guess, blatant experiences with it than me. You know, I, I find that to be interesting um, in the timeline. And I, I would imagine that today, especially with all the politics and things that are happening and race rise of racism, that there are some things people are seeing that you we would be like, it's amazing that it's still happening. So as black people, we know that it's still happening because yeah. you know that's our experience, unfortunately. No, I felt more betrayed by our policy than because my first wife actually grew up in Kuwait. So I was very familiar with. Kuwait before the, the war. And I had actually said to her that one day I was looking at a map of the region and I saw how Kuwait was had access to the Gulf and Iraq didn't. And I was like, if I was Saddam Hussein, I'd take Kuwait and have access. This is ridiculous. This little piece of this little strip here and I have no access, I would do that if I thought I could get away with it. And then two months later, we got a briefing about how dangerous Iraq is. And I saw, uh, I think it was Newsweek or one of those magazines, it wasn't time, put Saddam Hussein on the cover as the most dangerous man in the world. And then next thing you know, he invades Iraq. And I, and so all that made me realize like, this is all set up. You know, if I'm at home thinking that I would do this, I mean, who am I? I'm just a Lieutenant sitting at the base. thinking I would take Kuwait and now it's actually happening. And Saddam Hussein was one of our allies. Oh, come on. So that's where it really became clear that we just play these big, big games still. I knew our history, but are we still doing this kind of stuff? Yes. And now I'm an instrument of it. 
So yeah, that that's where I've I felt more betrayed. Let's turn to being veterans now. Rhonda, let's start with you. When you became a veteran, what happened to you? And then why did you join Veterans for Peace? Well, ironically, I joined the military because I didn't want to go to college. But when I got out, I went to college. <laughs> and I got two a bachelor's and two master's degrees. Oh, good for you. And That's awesome. Familiar. Thank you. I became familiar with socialism, the concept of it, through uh, classes and a professor I had when I was getting my bachelor's. I started reading, you know, being more familiar with American history and whatnot. And then I started working for the VA in 2012. I was just working, you know, I consider myself like socially conscious, but I wasn't like an active activist or anything until um, it was 2015. I went on disability, VA disability, and I had heard about um, things are going on in Nashville. So I started becoming politically involved. And then I just met members of Veterans for Peace out and about, and I decided to join. So Miles. I, I guess I came to Veterans for Peace because of my music. I'm a musician. I'm a musician activist. I went to the Marine Corps already a rapper, already an MC um, in my mind, right? As a young kid, as a 17 year old. Um, but I was taught how to format by a Marine. My whole life I've been writing raps. And when I got somewhere in undergrad, somewhere before undergraduate, I met up with this woman. I think I was in already in undergraduate studies. And I, I met up with this woman in Atlanta and through a rally. I had already been a black, a Hebrew Israelite. I had already left the Hebrew Israelites. And I had already been a teacher in the Hebrew Israelites, if you know about the Hebrew Israelites. And so um, I rose through those ranks and I know that whole history and hold a rally in Atlanta and she speaks, we have a permit from the city to speak. She speaks for about 45 minutes and we gather a nice crowd of a good 35, 40 people. They're loving the talk. And then I start to speak and five minutes in, the power gets shut, shut off and the cops pull up and say, your, your speech is done. What you guys are talking about is over. And we show them the permit that we have and uh, it doesn't matter. And they say, you can either leave now and 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 go upon your way or you can go to jail. And so I chose to leave and go upon my way. And uh, it was from that time until my son was, was about eight months old that I kept my mouth shut politically, um, pretty much in my music or anywhere else. And then dealing with uh, being a, a stay-at-home father for the first time and raising my son and I think having uh, PTS issues come to the fore in my life for the first time in a way I had to deal with, I wrote an album called Civil I Am. And you should check out that album. That's my opus, I guess, on the Marine Corps. And asked my wife what I should do with it. And she was like, you should not allow this to just go out. Just don't put this out. It was my third album. She was like, don't just put it out. Um, find somebody make it bigger than it than just you I, I i didn't realize i was going to write an album about my veteran experience and so then i started looking at all these veteran organizations and i found veterans for peace and i liked i liked uh, everything that they were about at the time michael mcpherson was the was the director i reached out to him and casey okay. mm -hmm. casey was instrumental i think in making making it happen 
Um, she really liked the music and the message. I became involved with Veterans for Peace in 2014. I went to a meeting in, in Asheville, North Carolina, and met, I think I met Michael and somebody else for the first time. And then I was with y'all for the year for years after that. I think for like five years or something. But uh as far as like socialism and you see the you see the flag behind me, um, you know, the black, a, red, and green. Yeah, um, it's it's a uh, it's a um, it, it's in the format of an American flag, but it's black, red, and green. Yeah, and I'm wearing an American flag right here, and I, I keep it I keep it close by. I'm I'm an American. I'm a hip hopper. Right? Hip hop is a product of America, um, but Black Americans and and Black people and Native Americans are as American as anything else. You know what I'm saying? And so I like to put that in people's faces in any way I can, any chance I get. It's weird to say I'm proud to be an American because it carries so much nastiness with it. The thought of that, the what that, what America does everywhere and to its own people, right? A lot of Black Americans don't say that. They they won't say that. It's it's proud to be the anti, you know, especially in my generation as a hip hopper. So it's like people identify with Darth Vader. They don't identify with Luke Skywalker type thinking. So saying I'm proud to be an American is shocking to people because proud boys and stuff like that, they're the ones holding the flag. I do it intentionally to create a conversation sometimes. And I do it because I know it's my right. And I do it because I'm a human being. I'm not a nationalist. I'm proud to be a human, right? I happen to be an American and I have the right to wear the flag or, or represent the flag like anybody else. They say this is defiling it, but the flag has defiled a lot of people. It's just a piece of fabric. That's extraordinary. Michael, to follow up on what Miles said, you getting out of the military yeah. and becoming a veteran, how's that worked out? I know, like Miles said, you were the president of Veterans for Peace, right? The executive director. Executive um, director. I guess all together 11 years. I wanted to show you something. I'll answer your question. This right here, if you can see it, it's two African-Americans, a male and female, holding on to the U.S. flag, but you can't see who's pulling it out of the, trying to pull it out their hands. It's like a tug of war thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, you can't see who's trying to pull it out. I love it. It's called We As One. And I think similar to Miles's, um, what he just talked about the flag and being a citizen of what I'm going to call U.S. America. A lot of people on the right and, and the left, because I see, I see the left and the right trying to pull that out of my hands, can't understand that you can love this country and have a kind of pride being from this country but at the same time, critique it and understand the evils of it. It's not all one way or the other. So when you hear people upset about critical race theory, for example, it's because they can't imagine that if it was them having this critique, that they would still love this country. They can't, they can't comprehend that I can talk about the horrors right now. I'm reading Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, um, and I'm amazed at some of the things his family and what he had to go through but still he had a love for people, for humanity. So I just wanted to honor what uh, Miles was saying because he and I in that way feel similarly. And I'm not gonna give up the flag or the United States or anything to the white races because my, my blood, my family's blood 
runs deep through this country as anybody else. The only people that can talk any kind of mess to me are the indigenous Americans, the Native Americans, anybody else. I don't even want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? So, but I met David Klein. I got out of the, I got out of the army and I wasn't really even thinking about being a veteran. I mean, I talked about being a veteran and, and having a pride in serving, but I got involved in, in peace because I started looking at how I see peace as the overarching way to pull together all the different struggles that people are engaged in to make the world better. So that's what peace meant to me. I didn't come to the peace movement through an anti-war lens. I came to the peace movement through a Black struggle and unity lens. Before 9-11, I had started writing stuff about peace. But then 9-11 happened. And actually, I went to a peace rally before 9-11. It was really small in Washington, D.C. And it was, it was an anti-ballistic missiles or something like that. 9-11 happened. And things obviously went off in a different direction when it came to being anti-war, right? My wife, who worked for the ACLU, and I was in New Jersey at the time, she was the executive director of the ACLU, was going to be on a panel with this veteran that she told me about that was in this group called Veterans for Peace. And since I had been going to some peace rallies and had started writing about peace, she thought maybe we should go and listen to this guy. So I went to the panel. I mean, I I went to the event and it ended up being David Klein, who at the time was president of Veterans for Peace. And so I met him and um, I really liked David. So I went to a Veterans for Peace meeting. And honestly, it was a lot of older people, Vietnam era, World War II, all white. And I was like, hmm, I don't know how's this going to work out. Um, but Gene Glazer, he was a World War II vet medic. And David, we just became friends. And I saw that because I'm about people, that we were thinking similarly about these wars. So I joined and tried to make myself useful. And apparently I did. Um, and David asked me to... Um, to apply for the uh, executive director job because Witty Powell, who was executive director, was getting ready to step down. There I was. So the only other thing I want to say about Black officers, because somebody mentioned there not being many Black officers in, I guess, the Air Force or the Navy. Um, There really weren't that many in field artillery either. And um, once, as a veteran and doing something with VFP in Washington, D.C., and I had on my hat, with crossbars or something and, you know, could see that I had been a captain. Some NCOs came up to me from, or they they were veterans, came up to me, Black veterans, and they just saluted me. And I was like, why are you doing that? (laughs) They said, because you are an officer in field artillery, and I know that must have been hard for you. And, And just warmed my heart because here are these former NCOs or NCOs wanted to reach out to me as a Black man and say that they knew what my struggles were you know, and they kind of just wanted to give me some respect for that. So I just wanted to to mention that. I've been, I read a book about moral injury. Harvey and I talked to a, a doctor from Moravian University about moral injury. Did your military experience change you? Did Do you wake up with the military every morning? Michael, do you? I, I have to say yes, I do. Um, if not every morning, certainly throughout the week when I see what we're doing and that I participated, I was an instrument, I have to say. Also, because I do believe in the ideals of this country. So there's two sides to that. One is our foreign policy, and there's also our domestic policy. I definitely wake up with our domestic policies every day. 
especially as a black person, not even just as a black man, but as a black person. And they're intertwined. You know, the racism that we have here is exported. The, the way that we treat black people and people of color, but especially black people with people of color, if you can do that to people at home who you see, who speak English, that go to the same stores and everything that you go to, and that sometimes you even praise when you watch football games and entertainment. If you can do it here, it's easier to allow it to happen everywhere else in the world. So yeah, because I feel like I have this responsibility to stand up to it because of what I believe, because of what I've done and participated in, and because of what I owe my ancestors. Rhonda, do you wake up with the military? Yes. Well, I go to the VA a lot, VA hospital. So, you know, it's all in my face. And the people who I associate with a lot of times don't, like they view people in the military like the world police. Like they make a lot of commonalities between police in the United States and military members around the world. I feel like, I don't know, I have mixed feelings. I feel guilt a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, I feel like, well, if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't be who I am now. You know what I'm saying? Even though that's kind of selfish. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I think about it every day. Yeah. That's fair, Rhonda. I mean, we are a sum total of our experiences and how we manage those experiences. So that's not selfish. So that's self-care. That's self-love. Yeah. I went through a long period after getting out where I was guilty. I was mad at myself. You chose to do it. Like you said, you were drafted, Jim, but we were volunteers. So, you know, I volunteered for that. I, I signed up to be treated like that. I signed up to treat other people like that. I should feel, and, and then the black movement in this country for social justice. I don't feel a lot of times people look at me like, why are you being a part of this? I, I mess with Greenpeace a lot. You know, there's a food not bombs uh, camp in my in my neighborhood, and I go out there and I do free performances for them. And people look at me and they're like, "Oh, he's a black man. He's a veteran. Hey, how does he fit into these spaces?" You own your space. You know, you whatever your experiences are, who have made who have made you what you are, uh, Rhonda and everybody else in the world is like, that's great. That's that's what makes you, you, you uniquely you and your story is valid and uh, necessary and needed. And your pain is not trivial just because like, I didn't go to com, I'm not a combat veteran, but I definitely have PTS. And so I don't have to weight my experience against somebody else's to validate it. I, I, I wouldn't say I wake up with the military every day. I was shaking my head no. But I am a, definitely a hypervigilant, uh, not maybe hypervigilant like I used to be. I'm vigilant. You know, I carry, uh, I carry weapons, knives of all sorts. I have a sword in my car, basically. I have an axe in my car. I, have, um, <laughs> I carry a Leatherman on me at all times. So I'm always prepared to at least be able to help myself in some way. You know, I have I have some tools that I that I know will help me through some situations. And I think about things like that. I have a whole camping gear, camping setup for my family upstairs for everybody, you know, just in case and stuff like that. So I think like that. You're 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 watchful. I'm definitely watchful. I know that the military could deploy into the US within a weekend. Like the 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 National Guard has and, and the Marine Corps and the, the US military has the capability to be in these streets in like the course of two, three days. And I wouldn't put it past them to, to do it if they felt the need. 
I've seen, like I said, I've seen what they what they do to a, an individual voice. If you check out my music, my music has no misogyny, no materialism, and no militarism. And that might not sound like a big deal, but it's a really big thing. It's a paradigm shift. It's a paradigm changer. And so uh, they know exactly who I am. Like I'm like, I was told when I was in Okinawa, um, speaking outside of the bases, we went in 2017, I went with a, a peace contingent with VFP led by Tarek. We were speaking to Marines on bases, you know, through our megaphone. And that for me was a big coming out of the shell, speaking freely, politically in a situation like that. I, I'm, that's not something I'm really into activism in that way i like i said i do it through my music so doing that a couple of the older guys told me they said oh yeah they said um I, I said why are these guys over here taking pictures of us there's like two cameras on us every base we went to and they were like there's a database they said if you're in gfp if you're in a, an organization like this there's a database on you and they're keeping track of you and every basically everything you do um and that's when i learned that COINTELPRO was started with one or two agents watching possible insurgents or possible people dangerous ones to watch in the country that they deem dangerous and now that number is like eight or ten there's ten people watching each person that they think might be dangerous so it's just like okay uh using your voice is very necessary like michael said um i do it honestly i do it truthfully and I live by I live by the things that I ask our government to live for to live by, and so I think that I believe and I know that protects me because I see the life I live. Coming to Veterans for Peace was very unique uh, for for somebody like me because I'm not into the veterans movement and never have been. I left completely disillusioned after getting the way I got kicked out, I left with no love for the military. I don't have a VA card. I never go to the VA. I don't want anything from it. I have recently realized the benefits of having all that I deserve. And so now 25, almost 30 years later, I'm trying to get it. Yeah, I haven't even made the trip to the VA. I need to just go to the VA to start my case, to get my card and right. start the whole process. But I can't take that step. And so, probably do wake up with the military every day because I don't want to go back to it. Yeah. I don't want to go yeah. anywhere near it. I don't want to go anywhere near it. You know, It's hard, man, not to. Would you advise a young African-American, young man or woman to go into the military? I'm just going to speak up and say not a chance on this planet. I do, I do counter-recruitment workshops with uh, World Can't Wait. And so I get to speak my truth on a, in a different way to the young people. I get to be very honest with them and very explicit about what I experienced in boot camp and the military, very detailed. And so, no, there's not a chance on this planet. There's no way it's not a place for a Black person. It's not a place for a human, honestly. The military is designed to, to cut you down and break you down, especially the enlisted, to break you down so that they can fill you up with with hate, fear, and respect for a system that is designed to kill and eradicate. And so once you understand that, that's because that's why the military was designed, the, the office of the army was designed for genocide, right? To clear natives off of their land. And 
So once you understand that and you see the evolution of the military and how it's everywhere, you know, the tentacles are everywhere around our planet, then you realize that no, we have much more potential in, in each of us to create peace. Like Michael said, the bases could be turned into so many different things. People don't have to join the military as an option to feed themselves, to get education, to support their families. It's a poverty wage. So that's a lie. Not okay. at all. Rhonda? No, I, I wouldn't. I think there's better ways someone could serve their country if that's what their motive is, a Black American, than join the military. Michael? No, I mean... I would tell the young person everything, all the things we're talking about right now. But I also know that people have to make decisions for themselves. I'm not going to put the person down, but I would tell them you really need to not, you need to figure out a different way. But I, I do know, I have to say, and this is what's unfortunate, and this is where the, I think the peace movement and, and people have to do better is find ways to help young people be able to navigate in a different direction. Because I, I just know too many young people who end up going, I mean, is it better to go in the military or go down some of the roads that some of these people have gone down? I don't I don't even really know. And that's really sad to say that because there's horrors here at home and, and and or you go somewhere and commit horrors, you know, and I, I it's just really is depressing. Um, but no, I would not tell them. It's a gamble. That's what people need to really understand because you can have good experiences. I saw them when I was growing up. I mean, I lived in military town, right? And I've seen people who brought their kids up and the kids are doing well, et cetera, et cetera. But I've seen too many people who are destroyed. And then I've seen too many people that we destroy, right? So do you want to be part of that? Because even if you make it through the gamble, you're going to be part of that. You're part of that destruction. Yeah. Michael led the campaign uh, created, I believe Michael created the campaign Peace at Home, Peace Abroad. Did you create that? Yeah, me and um, Patrick McCann and Margaret Stevens. Peace at Home, Peace Abroad is like the campaign that connects what you're talking about on this show. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Is um, the, the experience of Black Americans at home and our military experience. Because I believe the way you're looking at it is our military experience connects us to the world, right? And, and yeah. the world connection. The, the, I've traveled as a civilian to more countries than I did in the military. And Black Americans are revered around the world. That has been my over, overwhelming experience, is that we are revered and loved in most places for going through what we have to as, as Americans and, and surviving in this system. And speaking up. Every Black person who's like a close friend of mine who served has come out with deep psychological issues mm -hmm. afterwards. So like, mm -hmm. I just don't, I mean, I don't know. What other job is there where like, it's guaranteed you have deep psychological issues for the rest of your life afterwards. You know what I'm saying? Half the time you're treated like a hero, then half the time people can't stand you. It's just too much of a mindfuck. You hit it right yeah. there. Yeah. It's a mind for people thanking you for your service and you feel like that that was not that was disservice you know disservice yeah but i would like to make a to make a thread from what michael has been saying um and to what uh to what the show is about and veterans for peace is about and what they hope to gain um in in life uh working against the system might feel good but um working in the communities would be a lot a lot more impactful for uh, taking for changing the system, it would it would touch on it would make real 
giving these young people another outlet than joining the military. Going to rallies is not a way to, to avoid going to the military, but those people who form the rallies going into the communities can create different, different outlets for the people who otherwise have no choice but to support the system. Thank you, Miles. It's, I just want your perspective about the, the, the killing of Tyreek Hill uh, by those five men in uniform. And is it the uniform? Is it the system? And how does that how does that even continue to happen? I mean, I think the uniform in American society tends to give you a sense of privilege, particularly police. And clearly, they didn't value Tyree Nichols as a person. I'm sure him being black had everything to do with that. And so they did what cops do. I mean, they're all being black. I mean. Black people can kill other black people clearly because the system and everything and what we're ingrained in us from childhood is self-hatred. I mean, I don't think that would happen if you were white, but that's all I'll say. Thanks. Miles, Michael. I think it's horrible and, and, and disgusting and uh, death and killing is, is wicked and evil. And um, I don't think it changed. It, it doesn't make it worse that they were black. It doesn't make it worse um, uh, or more outstanding, I think. Um, it may, 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 maybe makes it sadder, if anything. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate when anybody kills anybody. And uh, the uniform, like, like Rhonda said, makes it, gives people a shield. It's like, they think they're um, above the law. Ironically, these guys are more subject to the law than, uh, than, their, than their lighter counterparts. When they're, you know what I'm saying? When they when they kill somebody, the system is the system is just corrupt. The system is is wicked. Black life is not valued. Indigenous life is not valued in this country. Brown life is not valued in this country. You know the same way. But it's also, I think, highlighted in a way to divide us as well. White kids are killed. White people are killed by the police. Probably not as violently, but it doesn't make the news. I don't believe that no white kid, I don't believe, I can't believe that no white kids are being killed by the police. Right. That would be, that would, I would like to, I would like to find that out. I believe that the, the media is used to divide us, you know, divide and conquer black, white, rich, poor. Michael? Miles, when you said um, it's not worse, but it's sadder. And I had never thought about it in that, a dichotomy such as that. And because uh, when I saw that it was five black police officers beat this boy, Tyree, like they did. I wasn't surprised that he was beaten by police because I think just like when you put on a football uniform, you turn into a football player and you do what football players do. So I think it's similar when it comes to the police. You put on a uniform and like they say, they're all blue, right? So they do what police do. So that wasn't surprising. But I have to say the degree was really hurt, hurt me because I do have expectations that Black people treat each other better. Um, that we lift each other up. We have to because no one's going to lift us up for us. And that's the only way we've gotten where we've gotten to is we lifted each other up. I go back, if you read Up From Slavery, and I haven't been a really big Booker T. Washington fan per se, but the book is very good. And there's a lot of that sacrifice uh, that Black people made to each other so that I could be here, so that we could be here, so that all of us could talk together. You know, it impacts everybody. Um, so seeing that was was very uh, disappointing, but not surprising. 
because of the police aspect of it. And as Rhonda said, how we're taught to dehumanize ourselves and self-hate. There's a lot of work that needs to be done and it is the system itself for sure. We can't just say it's bad apples, you know, a few bad cops. Lastly, I, I want to say about that, I wish more police officers would stand up and demand change themselves. Uh, and then I could be more sympathetic towards the profession because if I saw more officers standing with me, if I saw more officers out there in the streets with activists when things like this happen, instead of trying to make excuses or not saying anything, then I would might believe, okay, there's some change about to happen, but that's not what they're doing. You know, so I, I don't want to hear the police talking about, well, this cop's different and this and that. You all know who's not a good cop in, amongst you. There's no way you don't know. I don't believe that. Since I know you know, you all should have gotten rid of these people long before these things happen. And then if you don't, you should be out here saying something now. And most, most some do, most do not. It's not just one police officer or, or one group of police in one city. None of that. It's, it's the profession itself. And they need to take accountability. And the worst are the unions. The unions are way too powerful and they protect police officers no matter what, instead of saying, you know what, you don't deserve protection. They never do that. Miles? Yo, Michael just hit the nail on the head, man. That's, that's really at the base of all of this is corruption. Government, cities, police, military, it's everywhere. It's in the corporate world, it's in the restaurants, it's everywhere, you see. it's everywhere. It's in nightclubs. There is what is supposed to be, there's what's accepted, and then there's what's going on underneath and in the background. And so if you can't separate that at our societal level, you can't separate it, you can't, you're not gonna change it in the military, you're not gonna change it anywhere. We have a talk, we have a culture of toxicity, you know, like not toxic masculinity or anything, toxicity. We are a toxic culture. We celebrate and glorify violence and gangsterism. So if we're not changing corruption, we ain't changing nothing. We ain't doing it. We ain't doing it quick enough. I also think the media is a big problem too mm -hmm. because they just highlight anything that will get ratings. Not that things that they highlight are important, of course, but it's like right now it seems like they will show Black people getting killed and fucked up by the police because that's what they're showing right now. Even though we all know, like y'all said, like the only time here in Nashville where I read about instances of non-Black people getting fucked up by police that's not in the news is when you read the Tennessean. And they'll have articles of like other people getting beat up by the police or killed. And it's like, why are, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. And then they talk to us, Black people like children. Oh, you don't get violent. We're going to show you people beating the shit out of you and killing you on a regular basis. But we're going to chastise you like children if you think about getting violent. Mm -hmm. That's another mind And we've got so much potential if we could only figure out how to do the right thing. So together. So we have to leave it there and another show where we could have used another hour. And I do want to thank Rhonda Shelton, Michael McPherson, and Miles Thomas. This conversation was heartfelt and important. We do have a lot of work still to do. Now I'm sure you heard Miles talk about his own music, and I want to make sure you look for it. You can find him on iTunes, YouTube, and his website, megasife.com. That is M-E-G-A-C-I-P-H dot com. So now, back to Miles to introduce 
our closing song. Miles, uh, I want you to pick a song from your catalog of songs that you would want us to play at the end of the show, because we always end with a song. My record, um, Volunteers. It's called Vol Volunteers. Volunteers. Raindrops from your eyes. Images of glory in my mind at enlistment Overhead a flapping brick white and blue Filling the distance A grand divide between myself and conscientious convictions Or belief systems that stop people from killing over religion I was young and I was out of options in my mind It was supposed to be fun, my obligations ill-defined I'd be the one to take charge with a gun back in my mind Without college or riches, no dreams are realized Well, I never have the ladder the Marines to get me the first Ain't nothing bad in them dress blues and the one spit in this verse To see the world get to the GI Bill, fat in the purse My recruiter made it sound simple, a play get well rehearsed Forever cursed to the ones who get young innocent signatures Under the guise of a garden country, their honor diminishes Rebuild the standing army I never 
Let my children volunteer for the military To make the same mistakes as I did These days could be deadly If they're drafted with dodging Michael Black, stay Come ready on. I support Manning and Snowden You know where this country's heading Global tyrant, hegemonic Bully police force, demonic practice Virgin sacrifice, bloodlust Boy, your wars valuing corporations over people Vampires. This is sick worship by objects and pure evil Material desires get more attention and spiritual Benefits are based on profits Complaints aren't given view Arms manufacture supply both sides of conflicts Do you have a problem with any of these statements Or doubt their truth? I'm a father and a veteran And I stand for peace Julian Assange against our commanders in chief But it's hard to be better when daily demands compete I'm not ignoring the slaughter I'm just trying to eat like you Fallen Jesus